Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore's author reading series. This is Mitzi Trosel, the Midtown Scholar's events director. We're delighted to bring you highlights from recent and past book talks by nationally touring, critically acclaimed authors for your listening pleasure. Be sure to subscribe to this new free author reading series podcast on iTunes. Since 2001, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania's Midtown Scholar Bookstore has worked to transform our region by providing a welcoming space for the discussion and exchange of ideas about books, politics, arts, and culture. Visit us online at midtownscholar.com to learn more about our exciting upcoming author talks, to shop online for new, used, and rare books, and to plan your visit to our award-winning indie bookstore cafe. We're open seven days a week. Every book lover should visit, says Travel and Leisure, and Publishers Weekly calls us an indie bookstore jewel. As always, our author talks are free and open to the public, so make plans to visit in person when next you're in town. Keep up to date with our latest author podcast and bookstore events by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Midtown Scholar Bookstore. This month's upcoming podcast will include more highlights from the 2017 Harrisburg Book Festival and favorite speakers from years past. Today's podcast features the 2017 Harrisburg Book Festival keynote speaker, Dr. Ibram Kendi, who spoke to a packed house of 300 attendees on Friday, October 13th. Ibram X. Kendi, an award-winning historian and New York Times best-selling author, is a professor of history and international relations and the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. His second book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, was published by Nation Books in 2016 and won last year's National Book Award for Nonfiction. The Washington Post calls it the year's most ambitious book. In it, Professor Kendi demolishes the myth of a post-racial America and explores the origins and history of racism in the United States. He is currently working on his next book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, to be published by One World, a division of Penguin Random House. The evening began with an introduction of Ibram Kendi by Brandon Flood, president of a regional civic activist group called Harrisburg Hope. Professor Kendi's riveting talk then informed and captivated the crowd. We're glad to offer this excerpt from his 2017 Harrisburg Book Festival keynote address. Good evening, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, I want to welcome uh, and Welcome everyone for attending. Uh, certainly it's a Friday night. It's not that bad out. Uh, and I, I love how intimate this setting is. Uh, it, it, it forces you to talk to your neighbor if you don't know who uh, they are sitting next to you. Uh, and it's important that we engage in dialogue on, when, relative to all topics. So uh, Mr. Mayor, I wanna thank you uh, for convening this event as well as the sponsors. Also Alex uh, for reaching out and uh, providing me with the honor to participate. Now tonight, I've been afforded the privilege of introducing this evening's esteemed keynote speaker. The keynote speaker for this year's Harrisburg Book Festival is none other than the esteemed Professor Ibram Kendi. For those of you that may not be familiar with Professor Kendi, he is a New York Times best-selling author, an award-winning historian, a professor of history and international relations, and the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. In addition, Mr. Kendi is the author of Stamped from the Beginning, the definitive history of racist ideas in America for which he received the 2016 National Book Award for nonfiction. He's actually the, the youngest uh, recipient ever of that award. So let's get a, a round of applause for that. Uh, 
It is also worth noting that M Professor Kendi is also the author of the award-winning book, The Black Campus Movement, which was published in 2012. Moreover, Professor, many of Professor Kendi's writings have appeared in publications such as Black Perspectives, Salon, The New York Times, The Chronicle of Higher Education, New York Daily News, Time, The Huffington Post, and The Root, just to name a few. A current resident of Washington, D.C., Professor Kendi earned his undergraduate degrees from Florida A&M University and his graduate degrees from Pennsylvania's own, and the backdrop here, Temple University. Go Owls! <laughs> but simply put, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Kendi is a veritable expert when it comes to the history of racism and the subject of anti-racism. And as the mayor alluded to, our current president, in this post-Trump America that we now find ourselves in, there is no better time than now for us as Harrisburgians, Pennsylvanians, and Americans to more deeply explore the questions of what is racism, how does it presently impact our lives, and more importantly, will we sit idly by and allow it to destroy our very existence? The express purpose of Professor Kendi, his presence here tonight, is to explore the aforementioned questions and more. Having said that, and without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute honor and privilege to welcome this year's keynote speaker, Professor Ibram Kendi. Thank you so much, Brandon, for that introduction. Thank you, Eric, Mr. Mayor, for this beautiful bookstore. I mean, I've had the privilege as an author and really as an intellectual and a reader to, to visit many bookstores around the country, uh, even around the world. And, and, you know, when I came up and I sort of looked around, you know, I was just sort of in awe. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure Harrisburg's loves this treat. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to be a part of this treat, this store, uh, tonight. Uh, and I also asked the mayor downstairs whether there were any other bookstore owners that were mayors. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it seems to me to be the perfect sort of job, especially when we compare it to the 45 character, as I call them. <laughs> and, and so again, you know, Harrisburg, to Midtown, to this store, to you all, just thank you for opening your arms up to me and to this book. Uh, it's truly an honor. Brandon mentioned how we have to understand the way in which racism could literally, and is literally, I should say, threatening human existence. And what you should know is that scientists who are studying the longevity of humanity are, are typically honing in on two major issues that they feel are literally a threat to human existence. And one of those is issues is climate change. And the other issue is inequality. And of course, we have some Americans and some very powerful Americans who deny even the existence of these forest fires that literally and figuratively are burning down human life. But that doesn't mean we can't learn about the origins and persistence and the causes of climate change, and even more specifically, inequality. So we could ensure the existence, the continuous existence of humanity. So we can think and believe that our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, that our sort of descendants will have a place to live. And you know, I, I hate to sort of start out with that, but you know, just to be, just to be pretty frank, that is what we're facing you know, as a people. I, I also think 
that many Americans are trying to understand how it was that Donald Trump could follow Barack Obama into the White House. And, you know, I, I think that one of the reasons why that was perplexing and shocking to many of us is because the way we understand America's racial history has largely been incomplete. Uh, even President Obama himself, largely because he was trying to sort of galvanize this hope amid a nation that was quite cynical uh, about racial progress, he and many other even people who consider themselves historians would oftentimes sort of speak about this sort of singular racial march of progress that Americans have continuously made progress over the course of history, racial progress. And, and then during Black History Month, we would hear people say, we've taken two steps forward, we're taking a step back. <laughs> Anybody heard that analogy? I know I've said it before, right? It, and, and, and so the, this is the way we sort of understood America's racial history as this sort of singular force of, of, of progress or even racial progress. And so it was expected that the first woman president would follow the first black president, right? And that racial progress would continue. But in, in researching America's racial history, because really this stamp from the beginning, you know, I, I, didn't, I couldn't just tell a history of racist ideas. I also had to tell America's racial history. I also had to tell American history. And, and in researching this racial history, I found that that singular historical force of racial progress has existed, but something else was happening. There was a second historical force. In that second historical force, I classify or identify as racist progress. And so what we've actually experienced as a, as a nation is one historical force of racial progress that we have seen, that we have celebrated, but we've also experienced a second historical force of racist progress that typically we have not seen, that typically we've put into to the closets of history or even the present. And, and one of the reasons why we have not been able to see racist progress is because of racist ideas. So I defined a racist idea in Stand From The Beginning very simply as any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. It's a very simple definition. And what we should understand is that when you have disparities, when you have racial disparities, when you have racial inequities in a society, in American society, in Harrisburg, where I live in DC, in the United States, there's only two causes. There can only be two causes of those racial disparities. Either the reason why the black unemployment rate over the last 50 years has steadily been twice as high as the white unemployment rate, either it's because black workers are lazy, black workers are unqualified, black workers like hanging out on welfare, either there's something wrong with black workers, and that's why black workers are twice as likely to be unemployed, or job discrimination. Currently, about 40% of the incarcerated population in this country is black. Three times the national population. There's only two causes of that. Either black people are more likely to commit crimes, three times more crimes, or discrimination in the criminal justice system. You know, I say this because any racial disparity, any racial inequity, those are the only two causes. Either there's something wrong with the people, or there's some sort of discriminatory policy that's causing it. And so I stated that we have not seen racist progress because of our racist ideas. Well, what happens is if those discriminatory policies are progressing and allowing racial inequalities to persist and even sometimes expand, and we have been led to believe that those inequalities are persisting or existing because of there's something wrong with groups of people, then we're not even going to see, let alone be able to challenge discriminatory policies. And those who benefit from those discriminatory policies will be able to continue to benefit. And I mention that because, you know, in, in writing Stamp from the Beginning, I assumed the sort of what I call the popular folktale of 
of racism. And, and that is that its origins, the origins of, of, of racist ideas is ignorance and hate. That people who express racist ideas, who produce racist ideas, they produce them because they were ignorant. They didn't know any better. Or they hated black people. And that it was these people who had these racist ideas. These were the people who were behind racially discriminatory policies, racist policies, like slavery or even Jim Crow segregation, or even today mass incarceration. Anybody know anything about that folktale? That's, that's what I thought. And I thought that I was going to basically show the ignorance and hate behind these producers of racist ideas. Because in writing Stamped from the Beginning, I wanted to distinguish between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers. I wanted to write a history of the producers of racist ideas and ask these very simple questions. Why did these people produce these ideas? You know, every idea that we can think of, uh, uh, you know, expressing black inferiority, there's an origin to it. Somebody first produced that idea and circulated that idea. To give an example, this, this, this concept of sort of black hair as bad, that kinky hair is bad. Anybody know what I'm talking about? This, this idea that straight hair is good and kinky hair is bad. Well, actually, there was this scholar by the name of Robert Brown who wrote a book, I think it was published about 1850. And in this book, he wrote about white people's hair and black people's wool. Now, some of you, has anybody heard of Robert Brown? Has anybody been to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia? Well, he's the founder of the Franklin Institute. So Robert Brown was a major collector of human hair. He just loved collecting like human hair. And, and I don't know, I mean, you know, people have their things. I collect books, he collected hair, okay. And, and so he collected human hair. And, and at the time, the leading academics in the nation who studied race were arguing that the racial groups are separate species, that literally the white race was a separate species of being with its own creation story, with its own place of creation, and black people were a separate species of being with its own creation. This was known as polygenesis. So they clearly diverged, for those of who are, who are you are Christian, they diverged from this Christian idea that we all came from Adam and Eve. And so they used science to make that case. And so Robert Brown in particular, who collected human hair, and stated that black people's hair, or I should say black people's wool, as Brown would call it, is like sheep's wool, while white people have hair. And, and in, 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 their, in their, their wool demonstrates their closeness as a species to animals. And it also demonstrates that they are different species from white people. You know, I'm just sort of giving one example. I think, you know, in reading Stan from the beginning, you know, many of these ideas that still persist today, like that one, you know, there are, there are people who originated them. And so, you know, I, I just thought that these people were just ignorant and hateful. That's what I sort of thought. But, but when, when I decided again to study these producers and ask why were they producing these racist ideas, and when I tried to understand the historical moment in which they were producing these ideas, why did John C. Calhoun in 1837 declare that slavery was a positive good? John C. Calhoun, a senator from South Carolina, saying this on the floor of the U.S. Senate. You know, why did after the election of Barack Obama, people claim that the nation was post-racial. You know, why did this happen? And I found that these producers of racist ideas were typically producing racist ideas to defend existing racist policies. I found that they were trying to explain away racial inequities that were caused by those policies by blaming black people as opposed to racial inequities. And I found that those racist policies were not created out of racist ideas, but were typically created out of economic, political, and cultural self-interest. And so in other words, you had people who enslaved people because they wanted to make money. Or you had politicians who supported voter suppression 
techniques because they wanted to maintain office or gain office. So, you know, people created these racist policies out of political, economic, or even, or even cultural self-interest. Those racist policies led to racial inequities. Typically, anti-racists would challenge those inequities, and in order to defend those inequities in those policies, they would say, no, those inequities are not the result of, of of those racially discriminatory policies, they're the result of black inferiority and in doing would create racist ideas. And then they would circulate those racist ideas, we would consume them and become ignorant and hateful. So, so that's the story that I tell. I tell this story of self-interest leading to racist policies and racist policies leading to racist ideas and racist ideas leading to ignorance and hate. And, and we see this in our time, I mean, we saw that after the election of, of Barack Obama, a particular political party, I won't name any names, uh, decided that the demographics and the ideology of the country was turning away from them. So it wasn't like, oh, well, that's democracy. No, democracy. They were like, okay, so if we don't have the votes, what do you do? You suppress the votes. But they were blockaded by this very strong federal preclearance law via the Voting Rights Act. But at the same time, they were pushing this idea that the nation is post-racial, that racism doesn't exist as exemplified by one person getting one job. And, 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 and so this idea of America being post-racial, which of course, became almost like the child of America being colorblind. Y'all remember colorblind before post-racial? And that idea became decisive in the, in the Supreme Court in 2013, basically gutting the Voting Rights Act and pushing aside federal preclearance, the federal preclearance of new voter policies, which then opened the door for this flood of new voter laws particularly voter ID laws from Pennsylvania and across this country. And then, but you, you know, these, these policies which ended up suppressing votes had to be justified, particularly when people were like, what do you need these for? Or people resisted them. And so then the justification became what? Voter fraud. And then when people who read books <laughs> was like, you know what? I've studied this, and voter fraud is not a problem. Actually, it's, you know, voter fraud is as rare as alien abductions. <laughs> they were like, no, actually, three to five million people voted illegally. Voter fraud is even worse a problem than I originally thought, and I need a presidential commission to investigate this problem, the problem of, of alien, ab I mean, uh, of uh, voter fraud. <laughs> And then people consumed these ideas. And in consuming them, they became ignorant and even hateful. And people even in Philadelphia, sympathizers, people who believed voter fraud was a problem, went and got their guns and started going to black districts during the 2016 election, thinking that they were doing something. Right, that's just, you know, that's a, I think it's, a, it's an example that is actually indicative of something that happened before in American history. Because this concept of voter fraud is actually a racialized idea. After his book talk, Dr. Kendi read from Section 3, William Lloyd Garrison's Section 20, entitled Reconstructing Blame. Please enjoy this abridged version of his reading. And so I want to read a passage, and then we'll open it up for questions. Is that OK? William Lloyd Garrison decided to stay home and witness the magnificent two-hour procession of dignitaries, especially the veterans of the 54th and 55th Massachusetts regiments. When Garrison stepped to the podium of Fenhue Hall at the close of the celebration of the passage of the 15th Amendment, he looked older than his 64 years, tired and ready to step fully out of public life. He regarded the 15th Amendment as a miracle. The members of the American Anti-Slavery Society, meanwhile, felt that their work was finished. 
They officially disbanded on April 9th, 1870. The 15th Amendment confers upon the African race the care of its own destiny. It places their for fortunes in their own hands, imagined Iowa Congressman James A. Garfield. An Illinois newspaper proclaimed, the Negro is now a voter and a citizen. Let him hereafter take his chances in the battle of life. The passage of the 15th Amendment caused Republicans to turn their backs on the struggle against racial discrimination. After refusing to redistribute land and giving landless blacks the ability to choose their own masters and calling that freedom, after handing poor blacks an equal rights statement they could use in the expensive courts and calling that equality, they put the ballot in the black man's hand and called that security. The ballot is the citadel of the colored man's safety, parodied one black southerner, the grantor of his liberty, the protector of his rights, the defender of his immunities and privileges, the saviors of the fruits of his toil, his weapons, his weapon of offense and defense, his peacemaker, his nemesis that watches and guards over him with sleepless eye by day and by night. As this black southerner knew so well, the ballot never did stop all those hooded night riders. Klan violence was needed to keep, quote, keep the niggers in their place, explained Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Klan's first honorary Grand Wizard. To the Klan, the only thing worse than a Negro was a white radical. But the worst offender was a suspected black rapist of a white woman. It became almost standard operating procedure to justify Klan terrorism by maintaining that Southern white supremacy was necessary to defend the purity of white women. Black women's bodies, in contrast, were regarded as, quote, a training ground for white men or a stabilizing, quote, safety valve for white men's, quote, sexual energies that allowed the veneration of the asexual pureness of white womanhood to continue. The other threat to white male dominance was upwardly mobile black people. Klan terrorism showed the charade that was always the strategy of what I call uplift suasion. You'll read about that in the book. The Klan did not like to see the Negro go grow ahead, reported a white Mississippian. Landless blacks were terrorized by landowners. Land-owning blacks were terrorized by the Klan. In March 1870, President Grant sent to Congress documentary evidence of more than 5,000 cases of white terrorism. Between May 1870 and April 1871, Congress passed three poorly funded enforcement acts that dispatched election supervisors to the South, criminalized interference with, with black voting, and turned a wide range of Klan-type terrorist attacks into federal offenses. As a result, the Klan had normally dissolved, and I have in quotes, by 1871, but the train of terror still rushed down the tracks under new names. The vote was supposed to make miracles, and in some ways it did. They included northern transplants, southern Republicans, and southern black delegates, about half of whom had been born in slavery. For all their lack of political experience, wealth, and schooling, or rather because of it, these delegates produced alluringly democratic constitutions. They instituted the South's first publicly funded educational system, penitentiaries, orphanages, and insane asylums, expanded women's rights and guaranteed black rights, reduced the number of crimes, and reorganized local government to eliminate dictatorships. Initially, however, black politicians usually stepped aside when the positions of power were divvied up because they did not want to lend credibility to the persistent demographic charges of black supremacy, as if the charge had some logic to it. While blacks rarely benefited from Reconstruction's economic policies, growing corporations did. Facing war-torn communities and treasuries, the same Reconstruction politicians who refused to hand out land and aid to landless blacks on the pretext that it would ruin them 
handed out millions to railroad companies on the pretext that railroads would develop the South by bringing new jobs, factories, and towns, allowing for transport of untapped minerals and extended agriculture. By 1872, most of the South only had debt and poverty to show for the incredible amount of welfare handed out to railroad corporations. Bribed politicians happily gave away these funds. Only a small number of black politicians sat in senior positions of power, and thus their share of the corruption paled in comparison to that of white politicians. So I'm, I'm sure everybody can see the irony in the way in which the idea of corrupt black voters or just corruption more broadly was used to justify the mass suppression of votes in the South, which then led to the emergence of Jim Crow politically, an emergence that lasted for roughly 80 years. And you know, I write and wrote about this because clearly another political force is trying to do that again today. Thank you. At the end of the evening, Dr. Kendi took questions from the audience on a wide array of topics. Here are some highlights. I think to be perfectly frank, I think one of the, you know, clearly, you know, there's been a lot of accolades and awards and other things. I have lots of questions, but one of them has to do with the fact that you publish books and that publishers in the 19th century controlled voice. How much did they control voice? Could people like William Lloyd Garrison, white, could black people have published the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, of other models, so that children and white people would have known that there was another version of the story? Well, I mean, you're absolutely correct, I think in the 19th century and, and even to a large extent today. I mean, you know, there, um, like Eric will tell you, there's these big six publishers that pretty much dominate the publishing industry and, and then there are sort of independent uh, publishers that it's very difficult for them to get their books before your eyes. Um, and so if your book is not attractive to one of those dominant publishers in the 19th century or even now, and, and typically the books that are extremely original are a lot more risky, <laughs> you know, just like in any other industry, right? You know, nobody, where's, where's this re track record of success for this type of book? There is none. Okay, that's a, that's a huge risk, right? And so, and typically these types of stories are talking about, about the Buffalo, can you imagine if we were, if, if, if we were writing histories now about the Buffalo soldiers staying in the South to defend black people against the Klan, as opposed to being sent out to the West to overrun Native American communities, you know, it'd be a different type of, even the novel like that, right, would be kind of cool. Uh, anybody who's a novelist here. But, you know, I think, you know, I think that, it, I think it was difficult then and, and remains difficult. I mean, it's, it's, this book, was not published by one of those six major presses. Uh, the My Press Nation Books was acquired by one of those six, maybe because of this book or other great books that have come out. But um, you know, some of these major presses were were not. I'm sure all of them were not interested. Um, you know, they weren't interested in this completely different way of understanding America's racial history, which is unfortunate. But well, I think it's a combination of. Hi, um, I love the book. I'm teaching it uh, to a bunch of students at Dickinson College, and um, so thank you for that. Um, one question I have is what you think of what King called the white moderate. Um, so he says in the letter from Birmingham Jail something like he's almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the white moderate is more of a stumbling block than the Ku Klux Klanner or the white citizens counselor, so I'm sure you're very familiar with that. But um, I'm inclined to agree with King, or at least to share that that regrettable conclusion is the right conclusion. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious what you think, particularly given what you say in the book um, about assimilationists. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so in the book, I, um, 
another sort of intervention into, into America's ideological sort of racial history is I argue and show that there are really three sides to this debate, to this racial debate. And it's not just two sides, like racist and, and what I would call anti-racist, what others would call non-racist. I'm not sure what that is. That there's actually two kinds of racist ideas or two racist forces. And, and, and one is the Ku Klux Klaner type, which I classify as segregationist ideas. And then the second type of racist idea, and this was, I think, the type that King was identifying as the white moderate, is what I call assimilationist ideas. And then on the other side are anti-racist ideas. So really, I show this three-way history between segregationist, assimilationist, and anti-racist ideas. Not to give away the story, but one easy way to understand it is assimilationist, I'm sorry, segregationist have long stated that black people are inferior by nature and therefore permanently inferior. And therefore, racial in inequality is permanent because these people are permanently inferior. Assimilationists have stated that black people are inferior by nurture, that we're created equal, but black people became inferior as a result of their inferior cultures, or even the history of oppression. But because we're all created equal, we have the capacity to civilize and develop them. Anti-racists have said that black people are equal. <laughs> They're not just created equal, they are equal. And so the way that this plays out is trying to sort of understand why racial inequality exists. And the answer is, a th there's three different answers. What segregationists would say is black inferiority. What anti-racists would say is racial discrimination. What assimilationists have said is both. It's both black inferiority and racial discrimination. And so because of that, they are simultaneous, they first think of themselves as well-meaning, they ally typically with anti-racist, but they're not willing to go as far as anti-racist because they see part of the problem as black people. They're the type that would say, yes, the problem is bad, but you should choose a different solution. And their different solutions often ends, results in what I call gradual equality. And so another way to think of these three sort of ideological positions is, Segregationists advocate permanent inequality. Anti-racists advocate immediate equality. Sort of thinking through, remember when abolitionists said immediate emancipation. So anti-racists say immediate equality. And assimilationists say gradual equality. Why do they say gradual equality? Because these people have to be civilized. So even if we get rid of discrimination, we still have to civilize these people. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, so I have a question. Could you just speak a little bit on, um, I mean, it's a bit vague. I hope you understand what I'm trying to ask you. But your, your thoughts a little bit on how uh, political correctness in language in America, the way people socially speak about race, um, and this kind of emphasis on speaking politically correct is both a really necessary thing to be conscious of, but also maybe plays a, a, a part in a kind of assimilationist, racist um, way of behaving and thinking and speaking. Well, yeah, possibly if, I, well, I understand it. And I, I think it, it really depends on who's creating that political correctness. And so assimilationists in particular have, throughout American history, defined their ideas, first and foremost, as anti-racist <laughs> uh, and simultaneously sort of degraded both segregationist and anti-racist ideas. And what anti-racists ended up doing is sort of looking down at both segregationists and black people. So you segregationists, y'all don't know what y'all talking about, and you black people, we need to civilize you. And anyone who resisted that idea were labeled subjective, because really the, 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 these assimilationists were making the case that their ideas were objective in the same way segregationists were. You know, I'm, I'm just following God's law of the curse of Ham. You know, this is, this, is, this is fact, this is science, this is God's law. And so everybody was sort of wrapping their ideas in objectivity and in wrapping your ideas in objectivity and defining your ideas outside of racism, there was this continuous jockeying of what was politically correct. 
And, and typically, the mainstream of American thought, assimilationist or segregationist ideas and their terms have been rendered politically correct. While anti-racist ideas have been rendered like King was described as an extremist in his day. You know, all of the people who I describe as simply suggesting and advocating racial equality and that discrimination was, was the real problem were, were labeled radical and extremist and all these other ideas, which means you're not correct. You're politically out of bounds. And it, so it, there's this sort of internal struggle in which everyone wants to identify their own ideas outside of racism and your ideas as politically incorrect. And so that's one of the reasons why the subtitle of this book was definitive, not from like authoritative standpoint, but I wanted us to finally be able to settle on some simple definitions. A question I have, or a question in a statement, is that I feel like a lot of times when we discuss race, it ends up being a study of the victim. And we kind of tap dance around the social psychological state of the victimizer. And I wonder if you ever struggle with that, you know, being as though you're in a room with majority of white people and you don't really want to kind of flare up that white guilt, you know, and, and you don't want people to kind of say, oh, you're calling us all Nazis or you're calling us all Klansmen. So do you ever feel like you struggle to kind of be what the woman was talking about up there, politically correct, when speaking about race, where you kind of have to water it down so everybody will be able to receive what you have to say? So I, I think that... Um, <laughs> what, what I should say, I think it's a, it's a very fair question. Uh, I remember when I was a newly, when I first started teaching in upstate New York, uh, I remember going to this race lecture, um, and this scholar was saying all types of things, describing sort of, remember him describing racism as this sort of disease. Um, and he was, almost everyone in the crowd was white, um, except a few of us black folk near the back. And um, and so eventually, and, and, and so there I, I felt that he was more or less speaking and trying to sort of make people think while simultaneously, basically he was precisely doing what, what you're saying. And, and so then I remember asking a question, and I asked, this concept that racism is, is, is a disease, you think it would be better for us to understand it as like an organ of this nation, like one of the central organs uh, of this nation. And you know, I was just curious. And then he suddenly went from being, he suddenly became Malcolm X. <laughs> it started like, you know, saying all these sort of things that sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and you know, I was struck by that because clearly he was pandering to whoever he thought was there. And I remembered that and I decided that I was gonna try my hardest to not do that. Um, and, and more or less create a language that I can then speak to. Uh, and so this language of segregationist, assimilationist, and anti-racist ideas, the language of racist policies leading to racist ideas, the language of producers and consumers, these are sort of words that I um, had to sort of create and, and speak to. Um, and to me, they are clearly emblematic of what we're sort of facing from a racial standpoint. And if people feel guilty or if people feel hurt or bad, that's not my, I mean, that means they're the problem. I mean, I don't, I don't really sort of think about the way people feel. I mean, we don't have time for feelings. I mean, I, I, I mentioned earlier about like, you know, this problem is threatening the existence of humanity, right? And so, you know, because of that, I, I personally um, don't really, think about that, and I think when you read the book, you'll really see, <laughs> you know, I mean, because almost every major person that you actually probably adore 
you know, I had to basically describe and show the ways in which their ideas are racist and have been harmful. People from Abraham Lincoln to Barack Obama. My question is more about today, is like in the NFL for kneeling. When I've heard people say, oh, it's, it's non-patriotic to, to, dis to um, disrespect the flag and the soldiers. Isn't it, patriot isn't it unpatriotic to disrespect the soldiers who knew that they would never be backed by the government after they got out of the war? As you said, the 55th Maine, or the Mass, the Tuskegee Airmen, the, the Buffalo Soldiers, the Red Tails. Isn't that the same thing? Or isn't that, that not worse? And, and to give you another example of something that's worse, and I was actually gonna thinking about writing something on this, but I'm sure some of you probably will steal my idea. But, <laughs> but if you do, go right ahead. Um, and, and another example of something that's worse is, does anybody know what war led to more American casualties than any other war in American history? The Civil War, of course, y'all should know it, right? And up until I think was the Gulf War that more American lives had been taken during the Civil War than every other war combined. That's how many American lives were lost because of this Confederacy. So you have people who are defending the Confederacy publicly and honoring the Confederacy, people who literally took more American soldiers' lives. To me, <laughs> if that is not unpatriotic, I don't know what is. And so black people, we don't want incinerator transportation, we don't want nothing. Uh, and, and you know, so, so being able to sort of report on this community, fight against that, and they were able to succeed, but of course many communities are not able to succeed because these cities or townships or, or states have decided they need one, and so then when are we, where are we gonna put it? And typically they're able to put it in the, in the communities that have the least ability to fight against it. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's, that's politics 101. Like, if I have to you know, bring in this, this station, I'm not gonna bring it into a community that's going to lead to me not having a political job. Right, and so then, it, and then, and then politicians who, who, are, who do not have that sense of integrity are just going to, of course, do that. Okay. <coughs> Hi. Um, so this might be a loaded question looking onto the future, but um, from what you were talking about in terms of history and the historical context of, you know, Voting Rights Act and, um, you know, black people in war and like this evolution of racism and, you know, the three stages of assimilationist, you know, anti-racist and segregationist. Is empowering teachers to provide a more anti-racist curriculum. And there's no coincidence that in the South, they're teaching that the Civil War was over states' rights, Southern pride, and sometimes a little bit about slavery. I mean, that's not a coincidence, right? Because people, powerful people, have fought to ensure that that's the curriculum. And so I think we have to, you know, be willing to engage in those fights you know, and think about who has the power to shape the curriculum that's going to teach all of our children. Secondly, we have to recognize that the greatest education that a child receives is not in the classroom, but in the home. At the end of the evening, Dr. Kendi took questions from the audience on a wide array of topics. Here are some highlights. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I was so happy to have wrote this book when I did, is because two weeks after this book was published, my wife gave birth to our first daughter. And, <laughs> and, and I realized through reading, I'm sorry, researching uh, and writing this book that I had consumed ideas about black inferiority. And if I had not challenged those ideas, those racist ideas, you know, as I was sort of 
uh, challenging the racist ideas of Americans across history, then I probably would have taught my children those ideas. And so I think first and foremost, when we think about adopting a more anti-racist mentality, we're not just adopting that for ourselves, we're adopting that for our children. And so it's extremely important. I mean, you know, there are many different ways in which a, a parent is crucial in a child's life. And we speak too often about, you know, providing material resources. To me, what is even more critical is ideological resources. That is critical. And, and, and so I think we, we should be seeking to adopt an anti-racist mentality because we want our children to be anti-racist. And in, 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 in allowing our children to be anti-racist, we're, we're gonna allow them to not continuously be fooled in the way we've been fooled. Thank you. you can, I can ask you personally right here. Thank you so much, Professor Kendi. October 2017's fifth annual Harrisburg Book Festival, hosted by the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, attracted several thousand people over four days, packed with author talks, poetry readings, panel discussions, and book lovers in conversation. We'll feature additional book festival highlights in upcoming podcasts. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore is honored to have hosted this keynote address with Ibram Kendi and to share our recording with you today. To purchase a signed paperback or hardcover copy of Professor Kendi's National Book Award winning history stamped from the beginning, visit our Harrisburg store in person or browse and shop online at midtownscholar.com. We have a wide selection of other author signed copies of new releases from our author reading series, but only while supplies last. Thank you again for listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore's author reading series podcast of Dr. Ibram Kendi's keynote address. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to subscribe to our new weekly podcast on iTunes. And keep up to date with all bookstore programs at MidtownScholar.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This event was recorded live on Friday, October 13, 2017. Midtown Scholar does not make any profits or royalties from these recorded highlights. For more information about this recording or any upcoming events, please contact us at MidtownScholar.com. <laughs>